0: Uh, Yeah, it's so great to see you all here this morning, and before I begin, I'd just like to take a moment to pray, so I'd just like to all ask you to bow your heads. Um, Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, um, I just thank you so much for this wonderful Sabbath day. Thank you for life and um, for bringing us here safe and sound. I just pray that um, in this moment right now, Lord, you may reign and send through your Holy Spirit and open up hearts, Lord, and Yeah, please speak through me. Um, We cannot do anything without you, Lord. We thank you and we praise you. Um, Amen. So, yeah, um, if you are new to Springwood this morning, biggest, biggest welcome to you guys. And if you weren't here last week, we are currently, or we recently just started a new sermon series called The Secret of Strength. Ooh. Um, And this is a series that will be focused on the book of Nehemiah. And if you're kind of like me and you're like, who really is Nehemiah, I um, guess we will find out. And um, so last week, Pastor Joe dove into the first chapter, um, talking and introducing our main character, that is Nehemiah. For some context, he was a, um, of Jewish heritage, but he served in Persia as a cupbearer, the king's personal cupbearer, a.k.a. pouring him his drink and making sure it wasn't poisoned. So, I think I have a picture, yep. Um, For Nehemiah, he loved his home country, and most importantly, he loved God. And in chapter 1 last week, we learned about how Nehemiah was visited by his brother, who informed him about the desolate condition of Jerusalem due to the previous Babylonian siege. Um, Here's a little history timeline here. Sorry, the writing's a bit small, but... um, Yeah, to all my um, Marvel fans here, every time I hear the word timeline after um, watching that Loki series, I get shivers down my spine. But anyway, um, Jerusalem was destroyed. um, To the left, we can see Jerusalem was destroyed in 586 BC by the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar, who was later defeated and succeeded by various kings until we get to Nehemiah's time under Persian rule in 445 BC. So... Um, Yeah, I actually can't read those letters up there, but um, in that time, um, the people were allowed to go back to Jerusalem early on, but Nehemiah stayed in Persia to serve the king. And this Sabbath, we'll be diving into chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Nehemiah. So if you do have your Bibles, you're welcome to take them out now. There's a bit of content to digest, so I figured to assist our visual learners, there'll be some corresponding pictures coming up on the screen as we read along, courtesy of a cute YouTube video I found. And, um, you know, let's be real, it doesn't matter how old you are, we all love pictures, am I right? Um, so, Nehemiah chapter 2. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was bought for him, I, this is Nehemiah speaking, he took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before, so the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. Can we all say, Aw. aww? oh, look at his face. Um, I was very much, very much afraid. But, but I said to the king, may the king live forever. But why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, what is it you want? And I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in my sight, let him send me to the city of Judah, where my ancestors are buried, so that I can rebuild it. And side note here, um, the reason why the queen's face looks so shocked or disgusted in this depiction is that this kind of question could have easily gotten of servant killed right on the spot. So, but we find out later that the king says... Um, then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, How long will your journey take, and when will you get back? It actually pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. I also said to them, If it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of trans so that they will provide me with safe conduct until I arrive to Judah, and may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal park, So he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my requests. So I went to the governors of Trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. So Nehemiah then goes to Jerusalem. He inspects the current um, condition of the wall and he's like, wow, it's pretty bad and um, he basically rallies up a team to go and rebuild the wall. And when he does experience some pushback and ridicule, he responds by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. Can I get an amen? Amen. Now if we read on to chapter 3, this entire, entire chapter details the builders of the wall, naming each person or group of people and recounting the portion of the wall that they were responsible for. And um, to kind of save your ears from hearing me butcher every Hebrew name that is in that chapter, I found um, an illustration that visually encapsulates chapter 3 in a nutshell. Big thank you to Google Images. Um, and like I said, we love pictures, right? So it's, um, it's actually really incredible. God used Nehemiah as a catalyst and a leader, but look at the amount of people and all the individuals that came together Um, on a unified mission to rebuild this wall in such an astounding um, time as well. It was 52 days, I think. You know, that's a lot faster than the Ipswich motorway Roadworks. you know? Um, So, what an amazing story, right? Incredible. And I guess the question we ask ourselves today is, you know, what does that mean for our modern-day era? Well, I actually bought one of these... um, flame lighters the other day because I'm actually really horrible at lighting matchsticks. I always burn myself. Um, and I hope this is okay with workplace health and safety. But um, think of this kind of flame. I kind of wanted to use it as an analogy um, for the Holy Spirit, that God flame that is inside every single one of us right now. And um This kind of heavenly flame, obviously, I feel like it's a lot bigger, but this is just the safest um, thing I could bring today. I'm not going to bring a campfire. Um, But this heavenly flame, the presence that prompts action in our lives, is something that we can either choose every single day to feed or to let dwindle. And when we look at a Bible hero like Nehemiah, um, we can see that this man was really feeding his flame. And I wanted to draw out three simple yet profound spiritual practices that Nehemiah exemplifies in those chapters that we just read. So, the first and foremost one was that Nehemiah is in an active relationship with the living God. I know in the room today there may be some who will call themselves followers of Jesus and are actively living out their faith, and there may be some here who aren't so convinced or not completely sold on Jesus yet. But wherever you will find yourself on that spectrum of faith, I'm firstly glad that you've showed up today. And also, um, I want to emphasize that the very first step before anything I'm about to say afterwards is to make that intentional decision to give your life to Christ, to follow Jesus. And if that kind of irks you a little bit or um, makes you a bit uneasy and you're sitting here with questions about God or you want to know more and understand why Christians believe what they believe, please... Please um, let us know and contact one of our pastors or this email on the screen. Obviously, don't contact Pastor Kendall. Um, But anyway, uh, I mean, you could, but um, he's not here anymore. Um, But I remember, I remember my version of God before I did Bible studies was completely so different to the actual God of the Bible. Someone who I thought was a ruthless, tyrannical, indifferent Sky Daddy, um, is actually who I come to find out, a God of authentic, um, sacrificial love who is so wise and full of wisdom. And, um, you know, uh, ever since giving my life to Christ in eight, when I was 18, um, it has honestly been the best decision of my life. And my life has been so, so much more full because of it. And I used to think I knew what love really was until I encountered the radical love of Jesus. It's as 1 John four nineteen says, we love because he first loved us. And the thing is, human love is often so feeble, um, pretty underlying selfish desires and often transactional as well. But God's version of love is so, so different. And in Nehemiah's case, we can see that he achieved and did things for the greater good as a byproduct of knowing God's love for him. So firstly, um, he seeks God. The second is that Nehemiah actually asks for help. And he first asks for permission from his boss to leave. But on top of that, he asks for the king's blessing. He asks for a passport, and he asks for resources from the king. And he did this and risked his career, his life, And his status um, because he knew and that God was with him but he also wanted to follow through with what God had prompted him to do in the first place and you know for my people pleasers in the room or my control fanatics I know that asking for help can be a big task sometimes Um, I can definitely relate to that I remember when I was younger I used to be so afraid to ask for extra tomato sauce packets at McDonald's Um, but oh and on top of that as well with the rising trend of individualism and self-reliance nowadays, um, it's becoming less and less common to simply just ask for help. You know, um, I hear back in the day, you used to ask your neighbor for sugar or something. Um, But yeah, but God, God has not put us on this earth to be alone. And especially when it comes to ministry as well, God has not put us um, and allowed us, or God doesn't want us to do kingdom work on our own. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 9 to 10 says, um, which was mentioned before as well, two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either one of them falls down, one can help the other up. And as shown in chapter 3, like we saw before, so much more can be accomplished through the unity of people who come together with a common goal and work as a big team for God. So that's the second one. He asks for help. And third and finally is that Nehemiah is obedient. He follows through with the calling and gives all the credit and glory to God. And there's a quote I once read from Jerome Kay, who said, "Um, I like work. It fascinates me. I can sit and look at it for hours. The funny thing is, Nehemiah didn't just sit down and contemplate or dwell or think about the rebuilding of the wall. No, he actually got up and practically went to go get it done. And, you know, there's one thing to kind of agree on the call that God has for your life, but it's a whole different ballgame to actually be obedient to that call. And towards the end of chapter 2, we see that even with pushback from a few haters, Nehemiah entrusted that God would give him success. And what's interesting is that even the Hebrew name Nehemiah means comforted by God. So all of these three practices, we have Nehemiah um, seeking God, asking for help, and his God-honoring obedience. They are simple practices that are, are literally vital for a thriving relationship with Christ today. And I'm sure many of you have just heard these before, um, but I suppose if we do get a bit real in the moment, these things are pretty easy to say, much harder to live out and practice. Am I right? There's this um, philosopher named Michael Novak who discusses this concept of our three levels of belief um, that human beings think about. We have our public belief, that is what we tell others we believe, and we post on social media that we believe. We have our private belief, that is what we think in our heads and what we kind of say behind closed doors. And then we have our core beliefs, that is what we actually, truly believe. And Novak emphasises this fact that we never, ever violate our core beliefs. Um, An example of this is, you know, I brush my teeth every day because I have a core belief in dental hygiene is important and I don't want cavities. And I'm sure it's the same for you guys, hopefully. Um, (laughs) And the thing is, one of the greatest reflectors of our core beliefs are our actions. Many of us say a lot of things, you know, I love you, I would never hurt you, or um, Jesus is Lord of my life. These things are very easy to say, but our actions sometimes seem to tell a different narrative. I'll be the first to admit um, that I have been guilty of this many times, and it's as Paul says in Romans 7, I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do I do not do, but what I hate I do, for I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. And, you know, this is something we all literally have in common. Within every human being, there lies this great controversy of good and evil, um, where we have a conscience that approves of doing what's right, and then we have this flesh, or what some like to call carnal nature, that kind of is bent on doing the opposite. And this is a reality, this is our reality that we live in, and is a reality that is still existing even after we give our lives to Christ. I would argue that it actually gets a bit more real because you're more aware of it. But here's here's the good news. When we inevitably do sin or fail to follow through with what God has prompted us to do, we don't need to be discouraged. Um, Remember that flame, that Holy Spirit is our comforter um, who gently nudges us back into communion with God and helps us reorient those core beliefs. Perhaps, you know, we're not completely sold or convinced on an idea that Jesus is teaching or a topic that um, concerns us in our life. Um, for me recently, actually, God has been revealing that um, I have a tight grip on um, clothing. As um, when I was young, I growing up, I've always used clothing as a kind of coping mechanism to give me worth. And even though I've read and know that teaching um, that, you know, life does not consist in an abundance of possessions, although I intellectually agree with that, my actions um, can kind of show otherwise. And it's like I've kind of been saying, yes, Jesus, I believe this part, but I partially think as well that I can stand on both you and clothing as um, my worth and my identity. And I've come to realize now that, you know, this clothing is or clothing in general, or material things in general, are just shifting sand and is a foundation that will ultimately crumble one day. And I have no idea, you know, what shifting sand you may be standing on that you may think is stable right now, but I want to encourage you to ask God to expose those deeper parts of you. Ask yourself, you know, do your public and private beliefs actually align with those core beliefs? And what I love about Jesus is the fact that he's not just the truth, but he's also the way and the life. And the terribly limiting thing about this sermon today is that I could go on and on for hours and hours, and I won't, but I could. And I could talk about, you know, the amazing countercultural way of living that Jesus teaches, but if there's no action that occurs throughout the week, and if there's no communion with God every single day, then you'll kind, of like, kind of be like that kid in high school who knew absolutely everything about their crush, but never actually got to know them because they never went up to say hi. And you can't actually know someone by learning about them. You need to actually spend time with them. And in our secular Western world today, the kind of benchmark for being a Christian is a bit like subpar church attendance and somewhat belief in the existence of God, right? When we look through the Gospels, though, and the early church in Acts, we see that being a follower of Jesus was so much richer than that. There was so much more to it. Jesus was so in tune with his Father's voice that when he was deeply moved by his emotions, um, it would almost always or it would always, be followed up by action. Um, he saw someone in need, and he fed them, or he saw someone struggling, and then he'd heal them. And um, Jesus called for us to believe in him, is inseparable with action. So the question is, you know, what is your core belief on a good and abundant life? Is Jesus the one who gives you your worth or are we more reliant on career or reputation or beauty or money? Are we following and feeding the Holy Spirit flame or kind of ignoring it as we go about our day? And when I reflect on that Great Commission and the commandments of God, it's so clear to see that abundant living is centered upon relationships, to love God and love our fellow neighbors. As much as my introverted self hates hates to admit it, um, if we're of the kingdom, God calls us to be people people. Um, God calls us to care about people regardless of our personality. And, you know, we're called to live a life of radical love and to be the hands and feet of Jesus. And sometimes I kind of get a bit overwhelmed or sometimes a bit discouraged on, you know, what could I be doing, what could I be doing more, but I recently heard a profound sermon where the preacher simply said the questions, or said to ask ourselves the questions, you know, what is currently in my hands right now and what is on God's heart? Hearing it put like that is much, much less daunting. And um, for Haynes and I, I remember, prior to getting married, um, we would dream, absolutely dream about having our new place and revolutionizing our ministry together. We'd be like, wow, we're gonna have people over every week, feed them, care for them, and just, yeah, show them love. Um, And you know, fast forward to the present right now, if we're a bit honest, we actually don't have that many people over to our place. We find it just more easier to meet up at a restaurant or at an event. It's easier with schedules. also means that we don't have to clean our place either. So um, it's ironic. It's actually ironic because we really didn't need that place to be a bright light for God at all. You don't need to wait until a future time or a change of circumstance to fulfill the call that God has in your life. And if you're not really living out your faith right now, It'll probably be exactly the same in the future, because we don't need or what we need is isn't a change of circumstance. It's kind of a change of heart and a change of our core deep beliefs. So I ask again, what do you currently have in your hands right now and what is on God's heart? Nehemiah's story shows us the incredible, incredible things that can be accomplished when we align our actions and priorities with God's will. When we follow through with the nudge of that Holy Spirit, you know, some of us are kind of level 10 donors at the moment because we've been running away from something that God's been calling us to do for years. And I don't know what it is for you, whether to start that initiative, hang out with that co-worker outside of work, to write that book, make amends with that person you've wronged a long time ago, to even start a church, invite a new family over, or financially bless a person you know that might be struggling at the moment. All throughout the biblical narrative, we see God work through people who are not the most gifted, not the most qualified. We just see Him working through people who, who, through people who are willing. And the question to ask ourselves today, on Saturday, October 16, 2021, right now, is: Are you willing? Am I willing to move through my discomfort and awkwardness and say yes? to the promptings of that Holy Spirit flame that lives inside me. And, you know, we'll find that the more we flame this kind of fire, the clearer the voice gets and the easier it is to follow later on. But the opposite is also very true. The more we say no and cave into our comforts, and we kind of say no thanks to that guidance, the quieter and quieter that voice is going to get. And, you know, if God, if God can use a random Asian girl from Bankstown um, to preach here to you guys today, he can literally use anyone. And we don't want Springwood Church to be a nice country club. We don't want to just rock up in our nice outfits every week and, um, you know, just act like we're all okay and stay comfortable talking to the same people. We want to be a church, a real church, who are heeding to the heat of the flame every single day of the week, a community of believers that are actively connected to God, ask for help when they need it, and are living out their faith in a practical and tangible way. So my prayer for this week is that we take inspiration from Nehemiah and ask ourselves the question, will I feed my Holy Spirit flame? Thank you. Yeah.